And if you have a Bible, if you turn to Acts chapter 19, and uh, like Pastor Phil said, we have a big week coming up with Church in the Park, a great opportunity to invite friends and loved ones uh, who don't, maybe don't know the Lord to come out and uh, just have a good time under God's creation. Pray for good weather, too, that uh, when it rained, we'd be able to do everything we want to do. And uh, also that Bible study he mentioned, Experiencing God, uh, very powerful study if you're interested in joining that study, sign up in the back. So today we're looking at Acts chapter 19, and we'll be looking at verses 11 to 20. It says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. For the evil priest answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon all of them. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. A number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. When I was about eight years old, my family was in a very severe car accident. And uh, after that car accident, there were some legal, legal matters that had to be taken care of. And I'm not sure exactly what the nature of that was. I think it might have been something to do with the insurance company. But basically, we had to go and stand before a judge, and they just kind of had to corroborate that we existed and that uh, you know, we were healing properly and, and whatnot. So I remember thinking about that. And as an eight-year-old child, going before a judge can be a little bit scary. Uh, I had never met a judge before. The only image I had of what a judge was was from television or just ideas uh, that people had talked about. And so I remember going downtown in this, this big high building, I think it was City Hall, and going through the halls, and uh, the halls there are you know, kind of sterile uh, and just kind of industrial. And then I had to go in alone, if I remember correctly. My parents stayed outside, and so I have to go and before this judge into his chamber all alone as an eight-year-old child. And I remember going in there, and I have no idea what questions he asked me, but I remember he looked at me and he said, there's something, something there in your ear. And he goes and he reaches towards my ear, and then a quarter appeared in his hand. And I remember after that going out and saying, this was the nicest judge you could ever meet. And I remember thinking, I don't know how he got a quarter out of my ear. How did he get that in my ear? How did it go there? You know, and I think about this judge, and he'd probably sentenced some hardened criminals. He probably had to make some really tough decisions and tough calls, and yet he knew how to speak to a little child. He knew how to condescend and accommodate himself to a child who was a little bit nervous about speaking to a judge. And he uses a simple magic trick to be able to connect with me. And I think it's similar to what Paul does and in turn what God does in this chapter uh, as we look at, at the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire. It was known for its, uh, 
its temple, temple to Artemis. And it was also a place where magical practices were kind of flourished. And we're talking about magical practices. We're not talking about magic tricks, sleight of hand. We're talking about kind of harnessing the spiritual world for particular purposes. So they might have uh, little shrines that they would put that were meant to give them good luck or, or, or bring them success. They might have something that they would wear around their neck would be called amulets. Or they might have these kind of bizarre potions that they would have to, to, to kick up. Like they'd have to get the heart of a cow and the blood of a pig and, and put all these things together in order to move the gods in a certain direction. And so they get, that's the context that Paul is preaching in. And it says in the beginning of the text we just read that God was doing extraordinary miracles among the people. And these miracles are such that even the handkerchiefs and the aprons that were touching Paul were being used to heal the sick and cast out demons. Now remember, of course, it says it's extraordinary works. This is not something that we should expect to happen often. And there's nothing in Scripture that says we should venerate object as having uh, particular spiritual power. This was extraordinary. But if you look at the context, it becomes clear why God allowed this to happen. Why even the handkerchiefs and the aprons were used because it was in the context of magic. Magic was prevalent in this society and God, in a sense, performs a magic trick. He does miracles to demonstrate his power that he is greater than all the other gods. Yet initially what these magicians do is they try to fit God into their own categories. These, the things that God is doing is, through Paul is extraordinary. It's unlike what the magicians are doing. But they try to fit that into that context of power and magic. 1949, researchers did this study with Ivy League students. And in this study, they asked the Ivy League students to uh, identify playing cards. But there was two catches with the playing cards. Number one, the first thing is the playing cards were flashed before them pretty quickly, very short, very short time. Second, there were some trick cards. Uh, in other words, there were some cards that might be spades, but instead of being black, they would be red. Or they might be hearts, but instead of red, they'd be black. And so what they determined was that it, on average, took the students four times longer to recognize a trick card than a true card. And what they often did was they often compromised their reality to fit what they thought they knew. So instead of saying, okay, it's a black-hearted card, they'd say it was a heart that was illuminated by red light, or by black light. In other words, the participants couldn't accept what they saw. They had to reinterpret, compromise what they thought that they knew, that the card was the color that it was supposed to be, but there must have been some manipulation to make it look differently. The researchers called this study the perception of incongruity. It simply means that when we encounter something that doesn't fit our worldview, we tend to ignore it or to compromise, to fit it into our assumptions of how we think the world should work. The researchers noted that this affects all different people, even very educated students from the Ivy League. So Gamma demonstrates his power through Ephesus, and he demonstrates he's greater than these Ephesian magicians. And so some of these, some of these people, some of these soothsayers and itinerant exorcists decide, okay, we're going to take this Jesus and use him for our own purposes. What happened in the ancient world is oftentimes when someone would cast out a spirit, it was believed 
that a higher spirit was required to cast out a lower spirit. So if you wanted to cast out a spirit, you had to invoke a higher name. And so they're like, okay, Jesus, he has this power. Paul is, is working with the power of Jesus. So if we invoke Jesus, this higher deity, then we're going to be able to cast out these lower deities. And so a number of people do this. There's a couple that are pointed out, the sons of Sceva, seven sons of Sceva. And though they go to a, some people who, a person who has a demon inside of him, and they say, I adjure you in the name of Jesus, come out, or something to that effect. And the demon responds, pretty scary, right? Demon talks back and says, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? So Jesus I know, the word for know in this context is the Greek word gnosko, which means to know by experience. Jesus we've known by experience. Jesus we are afraid of. Jesus has power. Perhaps he was, demons were active in Jesus' earthly ministry and they, Jesus had encountered him in, in, their, in his earthly ministry. So he says, Jesus I know. Paul, I recognize we haven't had uh, particular interactions with him, but I know that he has power. I know that he's working on God's behalf and he scares me a little bit, but you, I never heard of you. I don't know who you are, and frankly, you don't scare me all that much. And so the man with the demon suddenly attacks these seven sons of Sceva, and he had such great power that he overcomes each and every one of them, and he leaves them bloody, wounded, naked, and humiliated. And in this episode, we see decisively that God communicates that he cannot be manipulated. That you cannot simply invoke his power, speak his name, and expect for him to do what you want him to do. That he's unlike the other gods. He is in an entirely different class. His power cannot be harnessed for man's purposes. Yes, God can work through human beings as he worked through Paul, but it was for God's purposes, not for man's purposes. Tim Keller uses the following scenario to illustrate how sometimes we can love God for the good stuff that we want him to give us rather than loving him for himself. He says, imagine that you're dating someone, and in this course of dating, you fall in love, and you tell uh, your girlfriend or boyfriend that eventually you're going to come into a great trust. You have a great inheritance that a loved one has passed away, and you're going to be a millionaire someday. And your potential soon-to-be spouse says to you, well, that's great but I, I don't really care about those things. I just want to be with you. I just want to have a relationship with you. Whether we're rich, whether we're poor, it doesn't matter. Then in the course of time, a few months later, you're about to get married, and you find out that that trust isn't going to come through, that that inheritance isn't going to happen. And then your soon-to-be spouse says to you, well, I don't think we should get married. I, I don't think this is right for me. I mean, what would you think about that? It's, maybe you'd say, well, you never really loved me. You never really cared, cared about me. All you wanted was the stuff that you thought I was going to get. And sometimes in our culture, what we can do is we can do what the Ephesians did. We're like, I, I know that Jesus is powerful. We want his benefits. We want his gifts in his, our lives. And we're like, how can I bring God's power into my marriage? How can I bring God's power uh, to change my children? How can I bring God's power into my finances? 
Now, those are, those are good things. Those are good things to ask for. There's nothing wrong with praying for those things. But they're meant to exist in the context of a relationship. I have a, me and Stephanie have a really good relationship with my parents and, and her parents. They're blessed with, with really uh, supportive parents. And uh, I think about my parents, and they would really do anything for me. If I, if I went to them and said, hey, we're having a tough day. We really need to do these things. Is there any way you could watch Paul? They say, you know, they do everything they could to watch Paul. If I came to them and said, hey, uh, we're really having trouble paying the bills, do you think you could load us a couple hundred dollars? If they could, they'd do everything that they could to, to do that. If I said, hey, we're, we're sick and we can't go out to the store, do you think you could pick us up some ginger ale? they do everything they could to do that. And, and there would be nothing wrong for, with us necessarily asking for those things in the context of that relationship. But imagine I'm walking down the street and I see a kindly old couple walking down the street and I go up to him and say, hey, I got a lot to do today. There's things I have to take care of. Would you watch my son for the day? I, I got some bills I have to pay. Do you think you might loan me a couple hundred dollars? Uh, <laughs> I'm not feeling so well. Do you think you could get me some ginger ale? I, I think they might call the police because I don't have a relationship with them. Asking my parents for something like that would be semi-expected if there was a need. But asking a stranger for the same thing would be out of the question. And the same thing is true in our relationship with God. God cares about the details of our life. He cares about our marriage. He cares about our children. He cares about our finances. He cares about our career. He cares about how we're feeling. But he doesn't want us to just come to, uh, to, to him with those requests and not have a relationship with him. Sometimes I think our prayer list and prayer life can look like that. It's like, God, can you do this? God, can you do that? God, can you do this? And we have all these things we want God to do. And sometimes I think maybe God is like, would you just talk to me? Would you just be with me? Would you just have a relationship with me? God doesn't want us to just simply seek his power. He wants a relationship with us. And so maybe we seek God's heart, and as we seek God's heart, and as we have a relationship, of course, God's power flows through us. But it's not about seeking the power, it's about seeking a relationship with Christ. And that's what these sons of Sceva don't get. They think it's about the power, and they don't realize it's about Jesus. But some people in Ephesus get the point after this. It says that many of them... Uh, had fear fall upon them, and Jesus' name was extolled. Now, these people didn't necessarily all become believers in Jesus, but they started to recognize that Jesus has some power, that Jesus had some authority that maybe we didn't realize before, that Jesus is in a different class than these other gods that we invoke or, or deities. But then there's a response among believers as well. These believers recognize that Jesus is powerful. And, all, and when they do that, they repent and they get rid of their magical books and, and magical amulets and idols and they bring them all together. And it specifically talks about the books here. And they burn those books. And it says in the text that the value of those books was 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, scholars debate exactly what the equivalency of 50,000 pieces of silver was. It's not completely clear. One scholar suggests it would be over $6 million in today's uh, currency. Uh, one 
Scholars suggest that it would be the average wage for a worker who worked 137 days without a day off. Another suggests that the sum represents 800,000 small pieces of bread, the enough uh, bread to feed 100 families for 500 days. Now, we don't know exactly the value of the, the 50,000 pieces of silver, but we do know it was a lot of money. It was very valuable. And what's even more interesting is that we know in, in the later, latter part of this chapter that not everybody gives up their magical practices. There are many people in the city who keep their magical practices, which shows that there would have been a market for some of these goods, that perhaps these believers could have sold their books and made a profit, but they don't do that. It's even more interesting that we don't have any record of Paul, you know, having this heavy-handed approach and saying, you, you know, you Ephesians, you are wicked, you have to give up your idols, you need to repent, you need to burn these books. We don't have any record of that. And yet they experience the power of God and they realize something has to change. They realize that this God cannot exist with other gods. And so they burn these books, considering them useless, going from a point where they, these were their life. This was what was important to them, and now it's worthless, useless. See, when we experience Jesus' mighty power, we can't help but put other gods aside. When we experience God's mighty power, we can't help but put other gods aside. And of course, when I'm talking about gods, we're not talking about the statues that we bow down to. We're talking about anything that takes the place of God in our life. And really, that could be anything. It could be good things. It could be bad things. But it's anything that can take the place of God in our life. Now, why is this the case? Why is the act of seeing and experiencing Jesus' power, why does that create change? Why does that cause us to repent? Or why should it? And the first thing is that it creates a fear in our hearts. The, the people in Ephesus recognize that this Jesus was so powerful and says that fear fell upon the city. They realized that Jesus was not to be trifled with, that he could not be controlled, could not be manipulated. See, in the scriptures, when people encounter the power of God, often their first response is fear. They're terrified at the greatness of who God is. In Philippians 2, Paul says this, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So in this passage, Paul says, this Jesus, he is highly exalted. One day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And because of that, you need to obey. Because of that, you need to work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. Of course, it's not talking about working for your salvation. It's about having your healthy respect and fear of God. And what does that look like? Does that mean I should be terrified of God? Does that mean I should fear that God doesn't love me? Of course not. Do I have to always be questioning whether I'm a believer or not or whether God's going to cast me off? Of course not. 
Think of it this way. I had a friend once who was a really ginormous human being. And uh, he liked to work out. He was a Second Amendment guy, military guy, weapon guy, terrifying human being. But he was my friend. And we'd hang out. And I'll be honest, sometimes I got a little bit nervous. Of course, he would never do anything. He was a great guy, my friend. But I knew what he could do. I knew the resources he had at his disposal, and it made me a little bit nervous. And I think the same is true in our relationship with God. Yes, he's our father. Yes, he's our friend. But he's also the king of the universe. And when we recognize just how great he is, how much power he has, it should make us a little bit nervous that he's not a God to be trifled with. And it should lead us to holiness. So that's the first thing that God's power creates in our hearts. But the second thing it creates in our hearts is wonder. When we're in awe and wonder at the power of Jesus, it makes it easier to put our idols aside because we know that those idols are powerless. We know that they're empty. The Ephesians were able to burn books 50,000 shekels worth because they came to realize that they're worthless in comparison to their relationship with God. See, unless we see Jesus as greater and more powerful than our idols, then we'll never give up our idols. In her book, American Girls, Social Media and the Secret Lives of Teenagers, researcher Mary Jo Sales reports a conversation with a teenage girl at a mall in L.A. who told her, social media is destroying our lives. Sales went on to tell her, so why don't you go off of it? But this girl replied, she said, Seems reasonable, doesn't it? If something is destroying you, let it go. Smash it. Get rid of it. But she said, because then if we did, we'd have no life. Trevin Wax comments, if I were to cast that conversation in spiritual terms, I'd put it this way. My idol is destroying me. But if I smash my idol, then I disappear. See, morality and self-discipline can only take us so far. If I believe that my sin or my addiction will ultimately satisfy me, then there's no way that I'm going to give it up. I could try. I could say it's a good thing to give it up, maybe give it up for a while. But if I truly believe that it's something that's good for me, I'm not going to give it up. So, simple example, a little bit silly, but I think it proves the point, shows the point. Uh, so last Friday we had a community group meeting and uh, I've been trying to eat healthy and this community group meeting was a dessert fellowship. And one of my favorite desserts is cheesecake. And there was like three different kinds of cheesecake there. Not only was there three different kinds of cheesecake there, but there were cheesecake pushers. It's like anybody wants some more cheesecake? Anyone wants some more cheesecake? We've got more left. We got this kind. We got that kind. I'm sitting there trying to resist one of my favorite desserts. And I can think about it in two different ways. So if I think about it and think to myself, all right, I really like cheesecake. I really think cheesecake is a good thing to eat. And if I eat this cheesecake, then I'm going to feel good and everything is going to go well and I'm going to fit in everything and I'm just going to have a good time. If I think that and then I think, well, I probably shouldn't eat it. I mean, it's not a good thing to eat, but 
I'd really like to. It'd be enjoyable to do it. I'll probably only be able to resist for a little short amount of time because I think it's a good thing and I'm trying to prevent myself from eating a good thing. <laughs> However, what if I thought about it a little bit differently? What if I thought about it and said, well, yeah, it tastes good. I'd enjoy it. But afterwards, I know that I wouldn't feel so good. I know afterwards, maybe I'm going to get a stomachache. I know it's not going to help me accomplish the goals that I'm trying to accomplish. That's a completely different motivation than, yeah, I want it, it's a good thing, but I'm going to try not to do it. And the same thing is true with any sin or addiction. If we're like, yeah, this is what I want, I want to do this thing, this thing is going to bring me life, but I know God says we shouldn't, so I'm going to try not to. Eventually you're going to give in, because that's self-discipline, that's morality. See, we need to come to a place where we realize that Jesus is greater than our sin. Jesus is greater than our addiction. And we need to come to a point where we realize that our addictions are powerless before God, that they're useless. And when we come to that place, then suddenly our addictions can go by the wayside. doesn't mean it, it's easier. It doesn't mean it's easy. still can take hard work and, and, and effort and relying on God's strength. But we need that motivation if we're truly going to change. We need to believe that God's way is better. That his way will bring us life. That he is more powerful than our addiction. And this has happened to so many people who are believers. Maybe it's happened to some of us here where maybe you tried to conquer something on your own. Whatever you know, vice that was, whatever idol that was in your life. And again, that could be a good thing, it could be a bad thing. It's something that takes the place of God in our life. And so you tried to conquer that thing in your life on your own strength, and then you failed. Then you met Jesus, and he changed you. And those chains fell off of your arms and your feet, and you were able to walk in freedom. My dad told me about a man he met. Uh, it was a friend of his when he was in the military years ago. And uh, this man, he was uh, addicted to smoking cigarettes, and he would just smoke cigarettes day to night, and uh, Jeb was just his, his thing. He just you know, probably smoked more than anybody that you've ever met. And so he came to my dad and was like, uh, if, I give up, if I become a Christian, do I have to give up my cigarettes? But I said, no. But there might be a time in the future that God will ask you to give that up. And so the man said, okay, I'm going to accept Christ. And he accepted Christ with no intention of ever giving up that addiction. And then two months later, God met with him. And God told him, you need to give this up. Suddenly, the chains fell off of his arms. That didn't mean it was easy. He went through a whole process. It was a struggle for him. But he knew what God was calling him to do because he experienced the power of God. What if we experienced the power of God? What if the chains fell off? What if we left our other gods aside? John Calvin once said that the human heart's an idol factory. We're always trying to make other things other than God our ultimate delight. But when we realize how great and how powerful it is, it allows us to leave those other things behind. Mark Gailey tells a story about uh, a time when he was 
supporting these Laotian refugees. These Laotian refugees had been supported by the church, and they came to uh, his church that he was pastoring in Sacramento, and they stated that they wanted to become members of the church. And uh, Gailey wanted to uh, walk through the scriptures with them. He knew that they didn't have a very great understanding of the Bible or who Jesus was, so he wanted to walk through the scriptures with, him, with them for a little bit before they became members. So they started doing this uh, study in the book of Mark. And this is how Gailey describes this study. He says, despite the Laotians' lack of Christian knowledge, or maybe because of it, the Bible studies were some of the most interesting I've ever led. After we read the passage in which Jesus calms the storm, I began, as I usually did, with more theologically sophisticated groups. I asked them about the storms in their lives. There was a puzzled look among my Laotian friends, so I elaborated. We all have storms, problems, worries, troubles, crisis. And this story teaches that Jesus can give us peace in the midst of the storms. So what are your storms, I asked. Again, more puzzled silence. Finally, one of the men hesitantly asked, Do you mean that Jesus actually calmed the wind and sea in the middle of a storm? Thought he was finding the story incredulous, and I didn't want to get distracted with the problem of miracles. So I replied, Yes, but we should not get hung up on the details of the miracle. We should remember that Jesus can calm the storms in our lives. Another stretch of awkward silence ensued until another replied, Well, if Jesus calmed the wind and the waves, he must be a very powerful man. At this, they all nodded vigorously and chattered excitedly to one another in Leo. Except for me, the room was full of wonder. I suddenly realized that they grasped the story better than I did. When we see the God who's revealed in Jesus Christ, when we look at the life of Jesus the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, we realize that Jesus is powerful, that he can handle the storms in our life. And that when we experience his power and experience his might, it causes us to leave all other idols beside. Because compared to Jesus, everything else is worthless. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you are a God who's powerful. We thank you that we can rely on you. We thank you that we can find our rest and delight in you. Lord, each and every one of us have things in our life that war for control of our hearts, that war for our attention, that seek to take their place, the place of you. Lord, I pray that we would look to your power, that we trust in your grace, that you'd give us the strength to leave all of those other gods beside. And that as we do so, Lord, I pray that we would find freedom and joy in loving you and following after you. In Christ's name I pray, amen.